Make more birdies. A bottle of bourbon, a little glass, and some ice. This is not a tip. This is a prescription. Trust me. Mm-hmm. If you don't, you will fall out of balance. Mm-hmm. Welcome to Birdies and Bourbon. Sit down and have a sip. Welcome back, everybody, to the Birdies and Bourbon Show. We're excited to have Jason on with us from Black Button Distilling, or Distillery. Um, you're coming. Uh, you're a little colder than we are today, bud. How's uh, how's the temperature up in uh, Rochester, just outside of Rochester, New York? So it's it's a balmy 45 degrees, which is warm for us this time of year. We've already had snow. Yeah, well, that, that's not that bad. I mean, 45, uh, we've just crested uh, Thanksgiving and, and easing our way into December. So yeah. actually, 45, you, you could live with that over the past, uh, what, what it could be, right? The alternatives? Yes. Now, now wait till January when we will go <laughs> 20 or 30 days uh, in the single digits. Mm. And it is amazing the difference between five degrees Fahrenheit and negative five degrees Fahrenheit. That is cold. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm in Atlanta and Dan's in Raleigh. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we get uh, we get like a day or two that it's kind of like, eh, it's kind of chilly outside. We better not go, you know, but just wait a day or two. And, you know, we're right back to, uh, you know, golfing weather. So, you know, we yeah. we, uh, yeah. we can move around pretty good so yeah two years ago we actually got seven feet of snow in 12 hours and it came through like a freight train like right through the center of the city so people in the north of the city and the south of the city got nothing and yet in the center you i mean you couldn't even find cars like you know you knew you'd parked it on the street somewhere in front of your house it was just gone sure sure luckily it melted a few days later but that that was a very difficult week yeah, I, I could imagine. And, and I do want to get into that a little bit with you. So um, and you'll remind me of uh, of you. So you're grain to bottle. Is that a grain to glass? Excuse yep. me. Yeah. So we're a farm distillery. Uh, we work with a single farm that grows all of our grains uh, in Edgewood, uh, New York, which is right down by Geneseo, about 45 minutes south of uh, Rochester. So it's the last of the Finger Lakes. Um, and they grow our corn, our wheat, our rye, and our malting barley that we then have malted here in Rochester uh, to make all the products uh, sitting in front of you. Hmm. Um, and we think the best quality ingredients help make the best quality products. Nice. Yeah. Well, yeah, I, I couldn't disagree. And hopefully we'll get into a little bit of your, uh, hopefully you'll want to get into some of your background and how you got started. But uh, just in case you haven't had Black Button before, uh, we're going to be tasting along with, uh, with Jason, the, uh, the four grain straight. Then we're going to go into the pre-prohibition straight bourbon whiskey. And then we'll finish that off with the uh, the cast strength four grain. And and I'll tell you, and I, I imagine you guys are shipping, right, if I wanted to buy something. Yeah. And are you shipping it through uh, one of the uh, – through Sealbox or any of those folks or – so we're using a company in New York City uh, called Mash and Grape, but the best part is uh, your listeners can just go to our website, blackbuttondistilling.com, and it's seamlessly integrated into our website. Nice. Gotcha. And and the really cool part, I was kind of looking through, um, through the spirits list, and uh, I got a chance to scroll quite a bit, man. You've got a, uh, you've got quite a list of booze on there. Um, and, and some that I'm sure you'll kind of share with us as we uh, as we sip this. But you want to share a little bit about the uh, the Black Button story and some of your history? Yeah. So um, I actually started pretty early uh, in my liquid making career. Um, in college, I actually ended up as a home brewer. Uh, I was a very industrious young man. And while we couldn't always buy beer, we could buy the ingredients to make beer. And <laughs> my roommates and I just thought that was the best thing ever, even though the beer was pretty awful. Um, And I kept that up as a hobby, uh, moving down to Washington, D.C., and eventually started working for an accounting company, and we had breweries that were clients. So I would go to these guys' breweries for like half a day every other week and help keep their books aligned. And uh, so we got our first distillery as a client, Catoctin Creek in Percyville, Virginia. And I can tell you, they got the best service that anyone has ever gotten because anytime they'd call me with a question, I was like, oh, that's a tough one. I think I better come out tomorrow and explain it in person. <laughs> and then, of course, spend like half a day hanging out at their distillery. Um, so Scott and Becky ended up becoming really good friends of mine. And I realized what I loved about making beer, I could translate into making whiskey 
but at the end you had whiskey, which was ever more exciting. Craft distilling was just getting started. Um, you know, there, the New York had just passed new farm distilling laws that if you partnered with a farm, you could have a tasting room and a couple of other options. Um, and they lowered some of the fees, you know, the, the licensing fees. So although they, they get you for every bottle you sell, um, your actual upfront cost was less. So I did the perfectly reasonable thing, quit my job, sold my house, moved into my parents' basement, bought a still and started making whiskey. Wow. And at the time they didn't even complain about that. Um, (laughs) They're very supportive people. (laughs) Um, But yeah, that was back in 2012. Uh, So we've been doing this about eight and a half years now. Um, At the beginning, it was just me and uh, one or two part-time people and I'd make whiskey in the morning and sell it to liquor stores in the afternoon and run the bar at night and on weekends. And slowly but surely we've, we've clawed our way up to, uh, we distribute in 14 States. We make 25 products. We have a hundred employees. Um, it's been quite, quite a whirlwind. Yeah, good for you, man. That's a hell of a success story. I mean, it, yeah. and, and it, and, and not maybe dissimilar than most, it's like, uh, I took a chance, right. And, and, yeah. and I, and worked hard and, and made it work. So that, that's really cool to hear. Yeah. Uh, you, you mentioned Scott at Catoctin, uh, they're actually going to be on the show in a few weeks. So, uh, oh, awesome. so yeah, yeah. Looking forward to, uh, I'll share some stories. Hopefully this goes really well and you can share good stories. Hopefully. Hopefully. <laughs> well, I helped them hire their, I helped them do the paperwork to hire their very first employee and he still works there and he's a good friend of mine um now almost 10 years later so it's been a good run for them and a good run for us yeah so so that's um so when you said that uh when you were getting into this and and they changed some laws so you you could go um uh you know farm to bottle or farm to glass if you will and so was that i mean is that kind of what said okay we can actually do this and and make it work i mean was was that was that something that helped kind of push you over that yeah i'm gonna give this a try so it certainly helped make black button what it is today i actually originally wanted to open the distillery in the dc area um and i lived in washington dc i i love that city um but the more I evaluated the business plan, I, I really couldn't make the numbers work with the higher rent and everything else. And uh, Maryland's fees are $60,000 a year. Whether you make one bottle or a million bottles, it's just yeah. 60 grand. Yeah. And that's a hard number to look at you know, in your first couple of years. Mm-hmm. New York had just changed theirs to being $1,500 and so that was you know like a hundred and twenty thousand dollar swing just before we even really got our feet under ourselves um i've also always liked my hometown um i really i moved down to dc for personal reasons and i'm happy to be back um and i think one of the things that i got more passionate about as i started learning more about it you know new york especially people that aren't from new york always think of new york as new york city Sure. But we're six and a half hours north of the city. I mean, I can get to Boston, Montreal, Toronto, Philadelphia, all lots faster <laughs> than getting to Times Square. Well, and, and, and lots of very rural area. I mean, yes. you're, you're talking about buying direct from the farm, but I mean, it's you can drive quite a few miles and you see nothing but farmland. So, yes. Yeah. I mean, we have school districts that cover whole counties because they can't have two high schools the county isn't big enough. Sure. Um, and so, you know, we, we have great agriculture up here. We, you know, the, the, can, the weather conditions that make it a little funky to live up here do some really neat things for the crops. We've got great soil from when the last glaciers went through and it's not something we're generally thought of for, you know, um, but we really do have great agriculture. And as we got to work more with those farmers and with those family farms, you know, it, it became clear that we could use the distillery to highlight that that great portion of the state that folks don't think about, as well as then making superior products with it. So, you know, I've always been interested in where my food comes from. I've always been interested in the craft side of it. Um, but as I got further and further into it, it just became ever more a part of what we do. And at this point, um, you know, grocery like I'm, I'm like the opposite of the normal grocery person you know i got a butcher i got a fish guy i got a produce guy takes all week because you go to like so each it's one not, it's on not the way a one-stop shop yeah yeah 
And the irony, we have Wegmans up here, so we have great supermarkets. <laughs> sure. And yet I barely use them. Yeah, so. understandably so. I mean, I, again, I'm in Atlanta, so and I'm pretty much in the city in a little area called Grant Park. I don't know if you're familiar or not, but it's, mm -hmm. yeah, we, we've got a few that we can kind of go to those specialty markets. Uh, you know, not, not so much, definitely not what you're getting up there. So, uh, yeah, I'm a little jealous over that. Well, and the neat part is we're about 500 feet from the Rochester public market, which is the largest open air farmer's market on the East coast. 1.3 million visitors a year. Wow. Oh, wow. So we, we literally can just walk up the street and get, you know, eggs that were came out this morning, cider that was pressed last night, you know, vegetables that were just picked. We, we are very lucky. Hmm. Yeah. And you've got a tasting room. Do you have a restaurant at, on property? So we do in our building, there's a wood-fired pizza oven at the brewery right next okay. to us. And people, you can order from our tasting room and they'll deliver it right next door. Sure. Um, we just do kind of charcuterie stuff um, and dessert. We got this really great bourbon cream cheesecake, <laughs> probably like the number one food item we sell. Made with um, your bourbon cream. With our bourbon cream, yep. Um, which, you know, for anybody that doesn't know what bourbon cream is, if you like Irish cream, imagine it fresher and bolder with bourbon in it. And you'll start to understand why we like bourbon cream so much. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, so you, you can get food in the tasting room, but it comes from, from the wood fired pizza the next door. Nice. Got but the landlord already had it put in um, our, we're in a, a big building that's owned by Rohrbach brewing company, the original craft brewery in Rochester. They've been there since 1986 and they were kind enough to let me turn a store, a 5,000 square foot storage room into a distillery about eight years ago. So. Well, you're, you're pumping a hell of a lot of juice out of there. I can tell you that. And I think everything is, as I'm reading, it's all kind of small batch juice, right? That, that's coming out. So yeah, we, we started out with thousand bottle batches. We still make a thousand bottles at a time. Um, but what started out as a thousand a month is now a thousand a day. Oh, wow. But the, we, the equipment has actually never changed partly because I was afraid of scaling up the recipes might change them. Sure. So we just never did. We just, we make the same batch size. We just got better at making more of them simultaneously. Yeah. Well, let's talk a little about the four grain, which I'm a fan of. I mean, it's, uh, you know, it's, we, we don't, we can go down the weeded road. If you we'll go down your weeded road, but I, I think that, you know, with this, I'm getting, um, uh, well, hold on before I get there. So we're drinking the four grain. Yep. Um, and so it's 60% corn, 20% wheat, 9% rye and 11% malted barley. And this is coming out at 84 proof. This is batch number 20. Yep. Uh, so what are we talking two to four years old, maybe? Yep. So we, we barrel down mostly in thirties. We got some fifteens, fifteens are going to run right about two and a half, two and three quarters years. And then the thirties are coming in right between three and a half and four and a half years. So we put the, uh, the minimum age statement on there. Um, it still says two. We really don't end up with much in there. That's less than three and a half. Sure. But until we get to four, we're not going to update the, uh, labels. Um, and each batch ends up just a touch older than the one before, uh, which is kind of nice. We, we do have a, a threshold. Also, we do a blind tasting between the new batch and the old batch. And if the new batch doesn't win, um, and we, we don't tell the people that are tasting what they're tasting, but if the new batch doesn't win, it has to go back in the barrels. Oh, nice. So, oh. Yeah, yeah. So nothing leaves the facility if it's not as good or better than the batch that went out before it. Yeah. Fair, fair enough. Yeah. That's I mean, cool. I think you did do a really nice job of kind of showing off or showcasing the, the four grains. I mean, you're taking the time to put them in there for a reason. Uh, what's probably the, the most trouble is not the right, the, um, uh, the most laborious might be the malted barley just because you're going through those extra steps with it. So if you really can't showcase that off in, you know, in, 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 in with the other three grains, it's kind of like, well, did we miss? But I, I think these do a nice job of standing off, you know, on their own. I mean, I'm getting, it's kind of, you know, it's, I'd say there's the sweetness of the corn. I get the finish of the rye and then in between, I'm kind of catching that barley and then, yep. uh, and, and some of the sweetness of the wheat in there. So I, I think you've done a built a, you know, for me, a good staged, um, uh, whiskey out of, uh, this is your flagship four grain, right? 
Yep. Yeah. So that's really the whiskey I started the company to make. Um, my, my grandfather who ran a button factory, which is what this is all named after. <laughs> um, he made Manhattans on Sunday oh. night at Sunday dinner. And so I took that, you know, tradition up as I, you know, as once I turned 21 and I found that if I made the Manhattan with weeded bourbon, it was a little too soft. And if I made it with a rye backed bourbon, it sometimes was too spicy. So I ended up getting in the habit of making it two thirds with a weeded bourbon and a splash of rye whiskey on the back end. Um, it just was what made, you know, Manhattan good to me. Sure. So when it came time to design my whiskey, I decided I would try to solve for that. You know, Blend well, your own, man. Yeah. So we wanted, you know, it's 9% Danko rye, which really stands up in the back end, but then otherwise it's a fairly sweet and soft whiskey. Um, you know, old fashions, Manhattans, neat. I like it in all those. Cool. Yeah. I, I, I yeah. Uh, actually may, um, I may get into, uh, I don't know if I'm going to go old fashioned or Manhattan. I may do both. And actually I may, as for, after we get through a few of these, I may be like, okay, that one's going to be my old fashioned. That one's <laughs> yeah. going to be my Manhattan. That's going to, you know, it, it's one of those, you can make the decision. You don't have to rush into it. Right. So well, that's why it's always so hard when people ask me what my favorite bourbon is. Cause to me, it depends on the weather, what I'm drinking, what the scenario is. I mean, my collection doesn't look quite as good as the one you've got behind you, but I, it can take a minute or two to, to decide what's the right drink for tonight. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. To me, this is, uh, this is going uh, right in my rag popper proper flask and it's going in the golf bag. And, uh, this is, uh, this is golf course sipping bourbon for me all day long for sure, man. Yep. The uh, cocktail suggestion on the on the website is this grapefruit moon. Yeah, yep. that sounds good. I haven't had had that before. Cal, you had one of those before? I have not, but it sounds good. What do we got? Who's uh, have you got a cocktail program there? Are you guys working on that, or what, what's in yeah. the grapefruit moon? So our um, our tasting manager is just a wizard. She um, she used to run a cocktail bar in Denver and now runs, uh, yeah runs our cocktail bar. Uh, so the grapefruit moon, it's an ounce and a half of bourbon, an ounce and a half of fresh grapefruit juice, a tablespoon of maple syrup. And then, uh, you know, we top that off with vanilla Porter, which is one of the year round beers from the brewery next door. And it's just really approachable, really easy drinking and kind of straddles that line between beer and, um, and whiskey. So beer, beer cocktails are always fun, especially since we have a brewery right in the building. That sounds yeah, that, fun. <laughs> that's, that's convenient that you can, uh, I guess, collaborate or, you know, whatever term you want to use, but that's, uh, that definitely sounds fun. And that, for some reason, I don't know, the grapefruit juice is kind of leading me towards that is a great winter cocktail, uh, yep. making, uh, making a holiday dinner. And, uh, you know, I want something a little, a uh, little different. I mean, that's, uh, that, that's going to set you free. The other neat part about it is it works pretty well making it ahead of time. So if you've got a bunch of people coming over, you can make like a picture of it and that way people can just kind of top themselves off. It's also not quite as boozy. Yeah. You know, any, any of our cocktails you can make in bulk. We always try to make them a little on the lighter side. That way, you know, when that guest pours themselves their third or fourth, they're not like hammered in your backyard. Yeah, I know. I've been asked to leave a few times. I can't lie. It's like, hey, I took care of that. Yeah, I can't leave now. <laughs> uh, so, so give us the. Uh, I'm going to pour some of this, uh, Dan. Yeah, you have this one too. So the pre-prohibition style, and I don't know. Maybe this is a good time to uh, to talk about um, Granddad and uh, the button business, and not to say that it's not an age statement necessarily, just the nostalgia of the pre-prohibition. So. Yeah, no. So our history is really important to us, even though it, you know, I, I know lots of people have uh, family connections that go back to prohibition. Um, mine do. They're just not in the, our industry. Um, so in 1912, my great grandfather walked into the Sean's button factory at nine years old and pretty well demanded a job. Um <laughs> And he was uh, finally successful. I'll give the abridged version, but he, he started working there. Um, and during the depression, they actually gave him shares in the company when they couldn't pay him. Oh, wow. Now what shares of stock are worth in a company that can't pay you is another whole question. Um, but when my grandfather came back from Korea, uh, he got married to my 
my grandmother and now needed a job. So he went to temporarily work for his father at the button company. Well, temporarily lasted 60 years. Um, wow. And he ended up, my grandfather ended up owning the button company by the mid eighties. He bought out the other partners as they retired. Um, and my mother actually still runs that company to this day. We make high end men's suit buttons for Oxford suits, um, Hickey Freeman lands End. um, you know, I once came into my mom's office. She was on, you know, having an argument with Vera Wang about, you know, fabric covered buttons. That was unusual, um, but <laughs> we specialize in high quality, low volume production of buttons. And that's really where I cut my teeth as a teenager. You know, I mean, you know, my parents ran a small business. So what did you do during the summer? You came and worked at the small business. Um, it was half day camp, half, uh, you know, helping out. Um, but it was doing this actually that we discovered something. Um, I'm colorblind. And so I'm very poorly suited to running the button factory because I'm, I'm not so does not work for you. <laughs> right. Yeah. We have a thousand shades of red, a thousand shades of blue and a thousand shades of green. Yeah. And I can tell you the difference between blue 100 and blue 900, but you know, 946, 945, 944, they all look the same to me. Um, so unfortunately I was just not well suited to run the button factory. So there was a joke when I was a kid that if I did run the button factory, we'd have to switch to only making black buttons. <laughs> nice. We oh, only have one color black. Here you go. Um, black button bourbon. There you go. So the, originally the company was actually going to be named Carpe Diem Distilling. Uh, Carpe Diem being a very important part of my life and the idea of you know, really taking each day to its fullest. But we couldn't get the trademark on that. So I sat down, I wrote like four or five different things. This was actually the last one because it was always just sort of a funny family story. I didn't think anyone else would find it that interesting. But as I was talking to people, they were like, no, you gotta, you gotta name it this. Mm -hmm. So we did, and it has served us well. Um, so that factory where my great grandfather worked is now high end condos. Oh. Um, but it was only about three blocks from the Rochester distilling company, uh, that operated here in Rochester prior to prohibition. Rochester, we've, we've got a big river that runs right through. We've got a lot of grain mills, uh, that were built upon that river. And there was actually a pretty thriving whiskey industry, you know, 10 or 11 distilleries in the city when prohibition hit. Um, and many folks might be familiar with fee brothers, cocktail bitters is still based here in Rochester as well. Um, so we were doing, I was doing some research, um, at the downtown library and came across some of the old documents from some of the old distilleries and started to piece together what a bourbon might've looked like coming out of Rochester prior to prohibition. So a much larger corn component, corn being the cheapest grain they had. The rye grew pretty well up here. They pretty much never used wheat. The wheat would go into baking bread and it was just too expensive. Um, and then a, a smaller amount of malting barley, because also actually prior to the mid fifties, there was quite a malting barley industry in Western New York. So that's where we ended up coming up with the recipe for the uh, pre-pro we also then aged it pretty much exclusively in um, in casks from Barrel Mill, which are uh, they are dried in a kiln, and we also store it in a warehouse that is cinder block hmm. instead of our normal one, which is metal. So it's a and we do it for a minimum of four years. So in those four years with, you know, it's a longer maturation than our pre, than our uh, blue label. Um, although the blue label is starting to catch up, but between the different mash bill and the different aging conditions, it comes out, you know, bur bourbon wasn't as refined back then. It was more rough and tumble. You felt it all the way down <laughs> and we wanted to, to recognize those things. Well, for, for the law, I mean, it was, uh, you know, generally speaking, I mean, especially during the era, I mean, it was, you know, it, not only was it uh, uh, some a spirit to enjoy, but it was a, a medicinal 
yep. uh, drug, right? I mean, so yep. it wasn't necessarily, hey, you should sit around and drink the whole bottle. Right. Yeah. I mean, it was very common for people to slug back one or two of these and then switch to their hard cider or their beer for the sure. night. Yeah. Um, you know, kind of got the party started and then something else would take over. Um, so, yeah. So it's a much more limited release. We only make about 20 barrels a year of it. Uh, we make 20 and we release five or six. So obviously the math on that will someday give us a much older version of pre-pro, which will be exciting. Um, but yeah, it's just a more limited release. And we, we looked at some of the old labels and tried to incorporate some of their brighter colors and some of their other fun things. We actually have a whole shelf in the distillery of bottles of uh, distilleries that had to go out of business due to the noble experiment. Oh, wow. Yeah, it's, that's so. That's one thing you you mentioned or you brought up that I, I did want to talk. Yeah, you know, I I love. Uh, I didn't know the story. I didn't know it in the way you just told it. Let me reframe that. And you know, in the sense that uh, you know, now we're getting. Um, uh, I don't. I, I don't. I don't want to call it a deficit at this point that you've uh, that you that you have because uh, actually you've t- you know you've taken it and turned it into a positive. I mean, what a great year to talk about. Hey, if things are not going well, uh, learn from it and just turn it into something that's uh, you know that that's creative and uh, that allows other people to kind of to to get onto that. I'm wondering, are you, do you like do anything with uh, any 5013Cs or is there any charities tied back to that? If that's an appropriate question to ask. Yeah. So we do a lot with a local organization called the Uganda Water Project. And one of the interesting things about them, um, they don't typically dig wells. And you typically think, okay, water in Africa, you need to be digging wells. And that's a very noble thing. And I'm not knocking anybody that does. Their big thing is restoring wells that have already been dug and teaching the local community how to maintain those wells. Because there's a lot of money for digging new wells. But the trouble is, if you don't do a certain amount of maintenance, at some point that well becomes insufficient to the local community. So that's the, the part of the puzzle that they have stepped in and it's it's run by a great group of people um they're located right here and water is such an important component of whiskey that being able to donate to an organization that um that is focused on water quality specifically at schools and hospitals even if it's halfway around the world um again they're headquartered in our backyard so that's our main focus we that kind of the, we figured we would support one organization a lot and then many organizations a little. Um, this year has been a little different. We made a lot of hand sanitizer mm-hmm. um, back in the beginning portion of the year. We made 400,000 bottles wow. in those bottles. Wow. Um, so it was a lot. <laughs> um, and right from the very beginning, we were working with the United Way and our local food banks. Um, even when we couldn't produce it fast enough to deliver it to our customers, we were donating a pallet every week. And one of my guys came up to me and said, why are we giving away a pallet when we can't even make it fast enough to supply our own orders? And I said, because we want everybody in Rochester to have access to it, regardless of their ability to pay because the homeless shelters and the nonprofit clinics they need to protect people just as much as the supermarkets do. And we want them to have these things. And, uh, and throughout the entire run of it, you know, I, I don't know how it became a pallet a week that just seemed easy. Um, but it also turned out to be kind of the right amount. And we did that all through the spring and summer. Um, and then our last piece of it was like two weeks before the election. And I was talking to somebody in Albany and I said something about, you know, voting in person and hand sanitizer. And they're like, yeah, we didn't budget for that. I was like, what do you mean? You're, you're going to have 21 million New Yorkers show up to the polls with no hand sanitizer. (laughs) And they're like, yeah, probably. And Mm -hmm. I was like, all right, well, we clearly need to talk to someone about that. Um, And they, the state did not have a budget to do it. And we, gave it to them anyway, because they, they took several bottles to every, all 7,000 polling stations across the state. And we wanted, you know, if people were coming out to vote, we wanted them to be able to do it safely. And, um, you know, and we did it. 
Yeah. Awesome. Yeah, yeah. it's great. So um, it, it's, I'm not asking what your favorite is. Uh, there's definitely a difference. I mean, in, I don't know, 84 and 92. So there's not a huge difference in um, in the proof of this, right, and, and what it's bottled at. Uh, I can definitely from the from the pre-pro. I like that. I'm gonna I, maybe I should have known to use that prior to, but I, I didn't. But uh, so the pre-prohibition. Um, I wouldn't say that I'm missing uh, the weed in this thing whatsoever. But you know, you were talking about with your granddad. You know, he goes to, he could go to this cocktail or that cocktail, and you kind of started on your mixing journey. I mean, I started thinking about. I don't need to mix it whatsoever, but I mean, it's I fun say, to do. Right? I mean, just sit. I don't send it. Yeah, I don't. The interesting thing for me on the pre-pro is I don't tend to put it in cocktails. Mm. So I tend to drink it straight, especially around a campfire, especially if you're having steak, you know, something heavy, something meaty. You know, it's a big, bold bourbon that's going to command attention. And whereas the blue label is real soft, easy to drink, smooth, mixes well. Yeah, the the pre-pro is going to stand up and be noticed. And I, I just tended to, to sip on it straight. The yeah, thing sometimes over an ice cube, but yeah. The thing I know I noticed on the pre-pro, it's got the huge long finish for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Very nice and distinguished kind of finish. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. And the barley, like it just, uh, that, so, you know, the, I guess the difference in the two is, is the rye. I kind of get up front on this one and on the pre-pro and then I get more of the barley kind of a little bit chewy on the back end of this, which I'm perfectly fine with. Uh, but it, it's, uh, you, you mentioned it, right? I mean, if you got a lot of bottles sitting on the shelf and you're looking for something different, I mean, I'm definitely getting tobacco. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm getting like, um, almost I, it's, I'm not, I don't get the smokiness out of it. Like I would say a pipe, but if I could take the actual, like the, the smoke out of it, and I don't mind the smoke, but it's like, I am getting that kind of, I'm getting something that's peaty, but not real scotch peaty. And then it's kind of blending back in with the rye spice that I'm catching on the front end of this thing. But then there's a lot of corn, as you mentioned in this one, that's kind of, you know, that, that just kind of just washes everything back. And it's like, put the glass down, sir. You're going to get in trouble <laughs> in a good it way. It definitely does call for you to have another one and another one. <laughs> yeah. Which is, yeah. I mean, I could, um, I could definitely, um, go for many, many more of those. So we, we've, um, we hit on granddad and is that, um, is, and, and is your mother still, is the button factory still in business? Yeah. So at this point I would probably call it more of a button import export business. Um, about three years ago, we, we closed the main portion of the factory. Um, and they still have the ability to, you know, sort buttons, um, change the color, change the finish, but most of it we outsource at this point. It's a sourcing Um, button. Yeah. Sourcing the button. Yeah. So I actually, I think that's maybe even a better way to say it. One of the big benefits that she offers is that she speaks designer. So they'll talk to these designers in New York city and they'll say like, I want a button like this, but a little more feminine and whimsical. Mm -hmm. And my mom will show them three others and they'll be like, Oh, like that one. But but one that has more to say, mm-hmm. <laughs> it's a button. <laughs> but my mom, you know, I mean, we literally have a library full of three ring binders with 50 buttons on every page and, you know, and different finishes and different edge treatments. And, and she can help walk them through that. And then we know where they get made. So that's, that's cool. You know, we're, we're down to there being only four button factories left in the United States. We, mm. we do a lot of work in England and Italy. Um, you know, it, people just don't wear suits the way they used to. And we, we never got into the mass, the, the high volume stuff, um, for like sports shirts and stuff. That's just not our business. It all went yeah. to China yeah. in the eighties and nineties. So we tend to keep our customers, but our customers keep, getting smaller. Hey, it's like, oddly enough, we're going to be talking to cricket shirts. Uh, I don't know if you know cricket. I don't know if you're a golfer or not. You don't have to be, to be on the show. I mean, it's uh, yeah. one of the you know, spirits or golf either way or both. So ironically, my grandfather taught me how to golf. 
Yeah, I well, wasn't bad at it at that point. Th- there you I, go. Don't, so, I don't unfortunately get out a lot these days. But well, I, I was thinking earlier when you were talking about you being colorblind, two, the two best golfers of all time were colorblind. So the interesting part about it, to the idea that your body, like if you lose one sense, you pick up another. My wife is always amazed when we're driving. I can read a sign like a freaking mile before she can. And so I, I don't get the color difference, but I really actually can see farther than most people. Hmm. That's interesting. And maybe that helps them be a better golfer. I don't know. Both Jack and Tiger are both colorblind. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it almost exclusively happens in men. Hmm. Um, interesting side note. And it's passed down through the maternal side. Wow. Hmm. Interesting. So, <laughs> so the man give the, uh, the, the man is the reason, but the woman gave it to you. Yes, it, it's on your X chromosome, and generally women, you have two X chromosomes, so they both have to be colorblind, or, or the X from your father would fix it. Um, but So that's when you know, men only have one X chromosome, so if your mother is carrying that recessive gene, you've got like a 50-50 chance of being colorblind. I mean, I, I know we're talking biology here, but it, <laughs> but it does weave its way back into chemistry, which is exactly what we're talking about and drinking the reason we're on the show. So yes. in case anybody got lost in that conversation, I mean, we've actually spun this thing around and like it's a, it's a little infinity. It just keeps uh, – yep. and if you're just listening and not watching, I'm making a figure eight. So. Uh, <laughs> find it amazing about once a year we have um a, a grad class from one of the local colleges come in and they are chemistry students and they grill us on the finer points of the chemical reactions happening in fermentation and distillation my head always hurts a little bit at the end of that day but it, it's fun to go through that at a super technical level with those kids once a year. Do you yeah. ever sit back and you're like, Hey, Hey, well, it, it's, it's not that, I mean, running the bit like the business in its entirety is very complex, right? I mean, and I'm talking yep. from, you got to grow it. You got to, you got to plan it. You got to grow it. You got to, then the, then the whole supply chain thing happens. And then ultimately somebody has to consume it responsibly, but is it ever, are you ever like, Hey, it's not that hard. Just, just easy. I, I actually often say it's not rocket science and thank God, cause I'm not a rocket scientist, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, and, and again, it's funny, like we have to know the, you know, the chemical equations that are happening, but you're not using them on a day-to-day basis, you know, partly cause we, we did the work to figure it out. So now we just have to repeat it, but you still have to have a really solid grasp of the, the, of the basics because it then impacts how you operate the equipment. So like we, we were having a problem the other day where um, a storm was rolling in. So the barometric pressure was dropping. When that happens, this still doesn't run right. You know, I mean, you, you basically the, the world, you know, we, we have enough of a wind change that we basically have a vacuum going on. And, and if there's a vacuum going on in the building, the, the stills don't run right. So the problem is we're up against the deadline. So we still need to get the product out. You know, this is our busy time of year. So I'm sitting there talking to one of our assistant distillers and good kid. And he he gets a lot of the stuff, but I just kind of kept bringing back to the basics. I was like, okay, so if the flow rate's too fast, what can we do to affect that? Well, we can affect the heat or we can affect the deflagmator at the top of the still. Well, your deflagmator is at a hundred. So you can't go up a hundred percent. You can't go up on that. So that only leaves the heat, right? Yeah. So you're going to go up on the heat or down on the heat because you're trying to slow down the flow. I guess I'm going down on it. Uh, so like, it, again, it wasn't hard. We just had to sit there and break it down into pieces. You, yeah. I mean, it, it's an equation, right? I mean, it's an, yep. and how do you, how do you start dissecting the pieces of the equation or the, uh, the, the supply chain that get me to where we want to be at the end that winds up in somebody's glass and they're having a good time and they're enjoying it and they want to come back. And it's like, what piece of this is breaking down that we now have to filter it back to, Yep. Speaking of, I think everything that we're having is non is, is unfiltered too, by the way. Correct. Yeah. So we've been consistently filtered, you know, like many distilleries, we started out where we were filtering the whiskey because it seemed like you had to. And then we started filtering it less and less and less. And right around batch 12, because you're drinking 20, we discovered that if we just let it sit in a tank for a week, 
which would let all the little precipitate kind of come to the bottom. We didn't have to filter it at all. We just rack like 90% of it off the top and the bottom 10% goes into the next batch. Hmm. I'm going to, um, I'm going to the cast strength, which is batch number four. Okay. And so that still would probably be unfiltered because we figured, you know, there's been a lot more batches of the blue label. I think there, I think four actually is the latest batch of cast strength. Uh, it said unfiltered on it somewhere. Yeah. Unfiltered yeah. to provide you with the true and authentic flavor. And yes. by the way, you've got some really damn neat catchphrases that I, I just, uh, I love. Uh, what did you say? Sip, sip to the day. Cause, uh, live, uh, live large and small, small batches. batches, but then yep. you've got another one about sipping, uh, sip the day away or to a day. Well done. Yeah. Sip, sip to a day. Well done. Yeah. To a day. Well done. Is that, uh, is that coming from some family, uh, lineage there did you guys cook that up or uh so the sip to a day well done was from one of our marketing folks um the live large and small batches came from the fact that you know i mean i'm certain the distillery in 2012 the world's still kind of getting over the 20 the 2008 2009 recession and to me whiskey is sort of one of those affordable luxuries like you may not be renting a house out on cape cod or out on the you know the outer banks uh you may not be flying off you know, to Hawaii or whatever, but you can buy a nice bottle of whiskey and enjoy it at a special occasion on a Friday night. So live large in small batches. That was sort of one of the premise of wanting to start the company even was that, you know, for, for not a lot of money, I mean, you know, 50 bucks for one of our bottles, Jim Beam White runs you 30, 35 in this state. You know, for, for not a ton extra, you can drink a, a, a really unique locally crafted product to go with that day you're celebrating or that achievement you're celebrating. You know, we just, we think life's worth celebrating. Well, I, I think that's the fun part. And one thing that, you know, that, uh, that Dan and I like to do is, uh, you know, is uh, talking with people like yourselves, you mentioned a few other people earlier and, you know, they'll, they'll have their time to, uh, to share their story, but it's, it's the story, right. And it's all the way from, uh, you know, Hey, I, I was colorblind and didn't know until we went through this process or, you know, my granddad. And then, you know, then we, you wound up in a, in a situation to where shares that maybe were worth nothing actually were worth something and, and it's a really nice story and especially in when you think about the days and, and i'm not knocking any anybody that makes um any any spirit or distillate I, I think that they all can be enjoyed in the right way at the right time but you know to think that you're going to sit down and uh and pull back a new york whiskey or a new york straight bourbon whiskey and people, you know, often might say, well, whoa, 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 <laughs> how can that be a straight bourbon whiskey? Right. And it's and that whole Kentucky moniker is gone. And and I don't think that Kentucky's upset about that. I think it's only helping the folks in Kentucky just as much as it helps you as much as it helps folks. And, you know, like yourself and and the folks that we mentioned earlier, because it, it's actually a really cool thing to figure. And the other really nice thing, I think, is to figure out, well, and, and it's not good or bad, but are they sourced or are they making their own? Are they are they going to the farm and picking up their stuff or they buy it in bulk or they bring it in? And I mean, there's so many cool and different things. And as you can see, I I don't know. We'll t we'll get in my drinking problem on our next episode. <laughs> oh <boy. laughs> but but it's it's not a drinking problem. Right. It's the fun and it's the value that you could you actually get. And, and I love New York and I love I love the city, but I also love to go outside the city. And I guess if you want to Long Island is is great, but then you still don't really get. I mean, go to Saratoga Springs, go to Rochester, go to Albany, go to all these places where there's so much history that's just kind of deteriorated away. And now it's folks like you, Jason, that are bringing it back and 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 instilling something in uh, a community that. Well, could somebody else have done it or would they? Maybe. I don't know. But I mean, you're doing a hell of a job at this, man. And you, I'm not going to have any trouble drinking any of this or referring it to someone. Thank you. No, we work very hard on it. And I, I echo a lot of what you're saying. I have a ton of respect for the products that come out of Kentucky. I have good friends that run independent bottling operations that source. Luckily, they're all ethical enough to put right on the bottle that they source. And I've got no problem with anybody that, that says, hey, 
my passion is finding great whiskey, blending it and presenting it. Um, I just like people to be upfront about it. I've got other friends that run craft, you know, farm distilleries, whether they're on the farm or connected to that farm, you know, again, I, th I think consumers, as long as you're being honest with them, that's what they're really looking for. Um, you know, and, and we obviously make a lot of different products. I've, I've got a lot of creative ideas. We've pretty well limited ourselves, um, to, to bourbon or to whiskeys, to gins, um, and then liqueurs that derive from one of those two. Um, some of that just being, you know, we, we've made rum, we've made brandy, and I think other people make them better than we do. We've never put any of those out, yo. Know, it was fun to make. We bring them out at the company party. But say, there's nothing wrong with saying that. Yeah. And yeah, I mean, we, I mean, we have great grapes and apples here in Western New York and we've made probably a dozen or two dozen different times. We've made different brandies. We did apple Jack the old way where you freeze it outside in the winter. Um, and they were all interesting, but none of them, was it right to bring to market for us? And we've just eventually kind of circled back to the grain based operation that we really know and love. Um, you know, and, and gins give us an opportunity to get creative and, you know, come up with an idea and release it three months later, you know, whiskey, the trouble is you have an idea. You'll know if it works in three or four years, <laughs> wait for it. Wait for it. So, so I'm not asking about your favorite, uh, well, that's a bad way to put it. Because uh, I already know you're giving you your favorite cocktails. Because if if I told you my favorite cocktail, it is a um, uh, it's a Negroni. Okay, it, hands down, hands down. And and if I can get to uh, somewhere in Spain or Italy and get some vermouth that somebody's made in their little uh, you know boat, I guess it's not a bodega, but their little restaurant yeah. or you know that that they've and they're whipping it up in the back. That is my favorite cocktail now, but I, and I also do like a Boulevardier, but I'm still kind of drawn to that vermouth. Yeah. I'm still, I'm still trying to find a good, I guess I could make my own kind of maybe, I don't know, maybe we got birdies and bourbon vermouth coming up. Who knows? But um, if you're, if you're sipping on, if you're going towards, and you, I think you just said it, but if you're going towards your, your, your bourbon whiskey, or you're going towards your gins, or is it the time of day, time of year, time of whatever cocktail you're having? I mean, yeah, for it, for me, it's all of those, but maybe I can, I can show it in a calendar. It, you know, if, if it's the winter, I'm drinking Manhattan's. Yeah. Um, and I really like Izagari vermouth. Uh, it's kind of like Carpano Antica, but a little more fight in it. And it is a Spanish style vermouth. Um, I don't have one liquor store in town. They bring it in for me. They have it on their shelf too, but I had to like, I had to like show them, this is the importer. Like, will you please buy this? You may be getting um, a note after this uh, recording. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then, uh, in the spring, I tend to switch to bees knees. Mm. Um, sure. so it's our citrus forward gin, lemon and honey. Um, as we get into the really hot, you know, weeks of summer, um, I do tend to switch to beer. Um, I just, I, I never got into vodka sodas and I, I just don't drink a You're lot of heavy stuff in back July on. and August. But as, uh, as fall starts to come around, it's either old fashions or we do a lot of mulled cocktails with our, our apples, our, um, apple pie moonshine. And so like hot cider, you know, hot, hot mulled cider cocktails with the, uh, the apple pie moonshine. That's my fall. And then by this time we're back into the Manhattans. So that's kind of my, my year in a four or five month area you know, breakout <laughs> season breakout. Nice. So, so where should we play golf at when we come up in the spring? Well, we have Oak Hill, which hosts a lot of the PGA tours. And if, uh, if everything goes according to plan, they're replanting part of the back nine um, this winter, uh, getting ready for the, I want to say it's the Ryder cup in like four years. Mm, um, so. they're, they're bringing down a bunch of white Oak trees mm. and they're supposed to let me come get pick them up. Staves? And we're, yeah. So we, we already make staves for barrels out of the trees at my farm. I have a 19 acre farm South of the city where we mostly grow juniper berries and harvest some white Oak. But how cool would it be to be sipping a single barrel of bourbon on a 
golf course with staves made from trees that have been standing over that course for a hundred years. Oh man. Yeah. Uh, that'd be pretty damn cool. And we, uh, we, I mean, you have our information, right? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> that'd be really cool. That'd be really yeah. cool. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm really looking forward to that. And ironically, one of our assistant distillers grew up next door to the head groundskeeper of Oak Hill. Mm. So, uh, so we've been talking to him for a couple of years about planning this out because also they actually, when they bring them down, I need them to leave me enough space I need 37 inches to make staves out of. So don't make them too short on me. Mm -hmm. God, that would be a great conversation for us to have as a follow-up, maybe uh, earlier in the beginning of the year about uh, if you're making staves and how you're doing that, I'd love to chat about that. Yeah, that would be fun. Yeah, we can definitely do that. And if you want to uh, ask your, uh, was it a distiller? Yeah. One of our assistant distillers. Yeah. We would love to have uh, the, the fellow or person from Oak Hill on, can't assume anything anymore, but we'd love to have the person from Oak Hill on to talk about uh, the course. Yeah, no, I would imagine we can set that up. It's going to be quiet, uh, you know, in a couple of next months, uh, two or three months coming up yeah. in upstate uh, New York. That's true. That's a good point. Yeah. 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 We yeah. should be able to set that up. No problem. Have some free time. Well, I've, I've loved, um, uh, I, I wouldn't put anything down that you've handed me. Uh, I'm definitely going to put this into a few cocktails and, uh, I, I don't know, maybe I'll, uh, I'll, I'll make some videos. Dan and I will, and uh, we'll send them your way, man. What else do we need to know about, um, black button and, uh, and, and Jason Barrett? I mean, um, we just keep, uh, working on making older stuff, uh, you know, the, the oldest barrels we have in the Rick house at this point are six years old, which since we've only been making whiskey for seven, so uh, we got some age good. stuff coming out. Yep. We're, we will have a 10 year, uh, at some point, not, not for our 10 year, um, our 10 year anniversary. We, we have cast set aside. They'll be seven and a half years old by that point. Cool. But there, there was again, a, a delay between starting the company and starting production mm-hmm. and the first pretty much year's worth of whiskey. Um, we didn't get to save any from, we just had to, you know, as soon as it was ready, you had to go. Um, cause you know, you're starting this from scratch. You don't have 50 or 80 years worth of stuff built up. Like some of the big the financier and you have spoken out. <laughs> yes. Although I, I'm always careful to make sure that we find a balance between those. Um, no whiskey before it's ready. And we, we luckily have developed a program where we really are making more whiskey than we're selling so that every batch is just a little bit older than the batch in front of it. Very smart. That's good. Um, as we, yeah. as we are, I mean, I like to joke, we're army crawling our way <laughs> to a six or seven year old <laughs> average age. Um, one, one month at a time. Well, um, yeah. yeah, I mean, at this point, um, you know, you can find us in most major markets, Massachusetts, New Jersey, Colorado, Texas, but anywhere in the United States, we can ship to through our website. Um, we always appreciate folks letting us know what they're doing with our whiskey. If, you know, if you're making something cool with it, you know, tag us on Instagram or on Facebook. We always love seeing what people are doing. And uh, if anybody ever finds themselves in Rochester, New York, we love doing tours and talking about our whiskey. So we will unfortunately probably be closed for the first quarter um new york has got some pretty severe restrictions due to covid yeah. uh but we'll be back at better than ever april and may time frame um and ready to rock and roll nice blackbuttondistilling.com yep yeah awesome well uh we'll raise a glass with you sir thanks for spending some time with us thanks for sharing um i'm i'm excited yeah. actually gonna uh we're going to do a little recording later with this cricket guy, and we may uh, whip up a Manhattan with this. Stuff. <laughs> Perfect. All Jason, right. cheers, buddy. Cheers. Cheers. cheers.